Welcome to the January 20th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss real-world outcomes comparing route of CNS prophylaxis for aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Learn more about the association of clonal hematopoiesis with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And discuss the efficacy of all transretinoic acid plus low-dose rituximab in corticosteroid-resistant or relapsed immune thrombocytopenia. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Single-Route CNS Prophylaxis for Aggressive Non-Hodgkin Lymphomas, Real-World Outcomes from 21 U.S. Academic Institutions by Victor Oriana Noya from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and colleagues. Central nervous system relapse occurs in approximately 5% of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, and carries a median overall survival of only 3 to 7 months. This complication typically occurs within months of initial lymphoma diagnosis, leading to concomitant use of CNS-directed prophylaxis and frontline therapy in eligible patients. Consensus guidelines recommend the use of the CNS International Prognostic Index, or CNS-IPI, to guide prophylaxis initiation. The CNS-IPI has been validated for CNS relapse risk estimation, and a score of four or more points is associated with a CNS relapse risk of 12% or greater. However, experts note that the CNS-IPI has not been standardized across all cohorts, and the model may fall short in discriminating between high- and low-risk patients. Most prophylactic regimens for advanced lymphoma utilize methotrexate delivered either intrathecally or via high-dose systemic administration, with high doses defined as greater than or equal to 3 grams per meter squared. Compared to intrathecal administration, high-dose systemic administration results in better parenchymal penetration, but is also associated with greater hematologic, renal, and other toxicities. To date, there hasn't been a multicenter head-to-head comparison of the relative efficacies of single-route intrathecal versus high-dose systemic methotrexate. Therefore, in the current study, investigators performed a large multicenter real-world analysis of adult patients with aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, or NHL, who received frontline chemoimmunotherapy plus single-route CNS prophylaxis. The authors aimed to compare the CNS relapse rates across prophylaxis routes and hypothesized that high-dose methotrexate would result in fewer CNS relapses. The study retrospectively evaluated a total of 1,162 patients with DLBCL, high-grade B-cell lymphoma, or transformation to either histology from an indolent B-cell NHL, patients with Burkitt lymphoma and transformations from underlying chronic lymphocytic leukemia were excluded from the study. All analyzed patients received frontline chemoimmunotherapy plus single-route CNS prophylaxis at one of the 21 participating U.S. academic centers between 2013 and 2019. The primary endpoint was CNS relapse, defined as new involvement of the brain, cranial nerves, leptomeninges, 
CSF, and or spinal cord after initiation of frontline therapy, confirmed either histologically or by radiographic findings. Progression-free survival, or PFS, and overall survival, or OS, served as secondary endpoints. CNS IPI and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network IPI scores were determined for each patient, and performance status was assessed according to the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group scale. All patients received methotrexate, with 13.5% of intrathecal patients also receiving cytarabine. The frontline regimen consisted of RCHOP in 47.5% and R-EPOC in 45.1% of patients. 77% of patients received intrathecal prophylaxis, and 20% received systemic high-dose methotrexate. In 3% of patients, the route of administration was switched due to toxicity, and this group was assessed separately. Based on the CNS-IPI score, 30% of patients were considered high-risk, 51% moderate, and 18% low-risk. Double-hit lymphoma was confirmed in 243 of 866, or 21% of evaluable patients. The two-year PFS was 71%, and the two-year OS was 82%. CNS relapse occurred in 64, or 5.7% of patients, after a median of 7.1 months from diagnosis. Of those 64, 15 patients relapsed within the first six months. No significant difference was found in CNS relapse rates, with relapse occurring in 5.4% and 6.8% of patients receiving intrathecal prophylaxis and high-dose methotrexate, respectively. The difference in relapse rates remained insignificant after propensity score matching to account for differences between recipient groups. Interestingly, testicular involvement was associated with a relatively high 11.3% risk of CNS relapse, even though most of these patients had lower CNS IPI scores. After excluding patients with testicular involvement, the adjusted CNS relapse rates for low, moderate, and high-risk groups were 3.6%, 3.7%, and 8.2% respectively, and 5% overall. Double-hit lymphoma was not a significant predictor of CNS relapse after single-route prophylaxis. Taken together, this real-world analysis found no difference between the route of prophylaxis administration in preventing CNS relapse in DLBCL. The authors concluded that reconsideration of prophylaxis strategies is critically important since relapse rates remained elevated among high-risk subgroups. They also note that future studies should focus less on the route of methotrexate administration and more on how to further leverage molecular features to assess risk, as well as the role of more biologically directed therapies in DLBCL. In an accompanying commentary, Norbert Schmitz and Fabian Frontzek from the University Hospital Münster in Germany note that the findings by Oriana Noya and collaborators shed doubt on the overall efficacy of both routes of prophylaxis administration in patients with DLBCL. However, they also note that completely abandoning CNS prophylaxis or opting for intrathecal methotrexate due to its lower toxicity would be premature at this point, since all studies to date had limitations. In the current study, the patients receiving intrathecal methotrexate were mostly treated with DAEPOC-R, while those receiving systemic methotrexate 
predominantly received RCHOP as frontline therapy. An additional limitation of the study is its retrospective nature. In conclusion, Schmitz and Franzek postulate that the small group of high-risk DLBCL patients, accounting for less than 10% of DLBCL patients overall, may benefit from a combination of aggressive first-line therapy, intrathecal methotrexate, and systemic administration of multiple drugs crossing the blood-brain barrier. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Association of Clonal Hematopoiesis with Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease by Peter Miller from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, and colleagues. Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, or COPD, is an aging-associated inflammatory disorder affecting approximately 15 million adults in the U.S., where it is the fourth leading cause of death. The pathophysiology of COPD is not fully understood, but studies to date have implicated aberrant, adaptive, and innate immune responses, as well as increased levels of inflammatory cytokines. Cigarette smoking and older age have been recognized as the strongest risk factors for the development and progression of COPD. Clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, or CHIP, is an age-related phenomenon caused by somatic mutations in the hematopoietic stem cells in individuals without a hematologic malignancy. By definition, CHIP requires that at least 2% of sequenced alleles harbor a specific mutation. CHIP is characterized by clonal outgrowth of mutant blood cells and aberrant inflammatory responses. Prior studies have shown an association between CHIP and increased risk of leukemia and ischemic cardiovascular diseases as well as weak associations with COPD. However, COPD studies were limited by small sample size, inadequate quality of COPD phenotyping and smoking data, and a potential confounding association between CHIP and smoking. In the current study, investigators aim to study the association between CHIP and COPD by analyzing whole genome and exome sequencing data from several large, extensively phenotyped cohorts of COPD patients and controls. In addition, they used mouse models to examine the relationship between CHIP and emphysema, a common pulmonary manifestation of COPD. The study analyzed whole genome and exome sequencing data from peripheral blood samples of almost 50,000 subjects, of whom 8,444 had moderate to very severe COPD. Study subjects came from four separate cohorts with COPD phenotyping and smoking history, of which the COPD gene patient cohort was the primary one. COPD severity was classified based on spirometry grades from the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or GOLD. The authors found that individuals with CHIP from the COPD gene cohort had a 1.6-fold greater risk of developing moderate to severe COPD and a 2.2-fold greater risk of developing very severe COPD than non-carriers. These findings were consistent across the remaining three cohorts and in the meta-analysis of all subjects. CHIP was also associated with a 5.7% decrease in the predicted forced expiratory volume measured by spirometry in the COPD gene cohort. A meta-analysis of all subjects revealed that smoke exposure was associated with a small but significant increased risk of having CHIP, 
with an odds ratio of 1.03 per 10-pack years. Furthermore, the presence of severe to very severe COPD based on gold scores was significantly associated with mutations in DNMT3, TET2, and TP53 genes. The authors hypothesized that mutated hematopoietic cells could promote an inflammatory phenotype to accelerate COPD. Because TET2 was commonly mutated and independently associated with COPD in previous human studies, the authors decided to study a TET2 knockout mouse model of CHIP, which faithfully recapitulates other inflammatory phenotypes observed in humans with CHIP. Interestingly, inactivation of TET2 in mouse hematopoietic cells led to an exacerbation of emphysema and inflammation in mice exposed to cigarette smoke in combination with poly-IC, an oligonucleotide that stimulates TLR3 and mimics exposure to viral infections, which are more common in COPD patients. Taken together, these findings indicate that age-associated somatic mutations in blood cells are independently associated with the development and severity of COPD, independent of age, cigarette smoke exposure, or inherited polygenic risk score. Moreover, these findings highlight the potential therapeutic value in targeting CHIP in the treatment or prevention of COPD. In an accompanying commentary, Gerwin Hulls from the University Medical Center Groningen in Groningen, the Netherlands, notes that the study by Miller and colleagues convincingly demonstrates the contribution of CHIP to the risk of COPD. Experiments with transgenic mice provided additional confirmation that aberrant immune cell function caused by CHIP can augment inflammatory stimuli and drive COPD. Hulls believes that future studies should focus on understanding why only some individuals develop CHIP, assessing the role of CHIP in other inflammatory diseases, and determining the factors that trigger their emergence. He also notes that it would be interesting to study available IL-1 beta inhibitors in COPD patients who also have CHIP with mutated TET2, given an association of CHIP with secretion of IL-1 beta. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled all transretinoic acid plus low-dose rituximab versus low-dose rituximab in corticosteroid-resistant or relapsed ITP by Yijun Wu from the Peking University People's Hospital in Beijing, China, and colleagues. Immune thrombocytopenia, or ITP, is a common autoimmune platelet disorder characterized by increased destruction and insufficient production of platelets. Corticosteroids and intravenous immunoglobulin are first-line treatments for ITP, but approximately one-third of adult patients fail to achieve a response. In addition, most who respond to initial therapy will eventually relapse and require second-line treatment. Rituximab is a chimeric anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody frequently used in ITP. It acts by rapidly depleting CD20-positive B lymphocytes and modulating T cells. Two rituximab regimens have been proposed for ITP, a low-dose regimen consisting of a 100 mg flat dose weekly for four administrations, and a standard-dose regimen consisting of 375 mg per meter squared weekly for four administrations. 
However, an optimal regimen has not been established to date. Previous studies have shown an overall response of almost 60% and a sustained response between 30 and 40% in patients treated with the standard dose regimen. Alltrans retinoic acid, or ATRA, is a key metabolite of vitamin A involved in cell proliferation and differentiation. Preliminary studies conducted by Wu and collaborators pointed to the efficacy of ATRA in ITP due to its immunomodulatory effects and the ability to induce differentiation and maturation of megakaryocytes. In addition, a multicenter randomized phase two study by this group found that the combination of ATRA and androgen denazol results in a 38% improvement in OR and a 37% improvement in 12-month remission compared to denazol monotherapy. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that a combination of rituximab and ATRA may work synergistically based on a double-hit mechanism targeting both platelet production and destruction. To test their hypothesis, they enrolled 168 adult patients with steroid refractory or relapsed ITP on the current trial and randomized them 2 to 1 to low-dose rituximab plus ATRA or low-dose rituximab monotherapy. Study subjects were recruited across seven tertiary medical centers in China between October 2017 and January 2020. The primary endpoint of the study was overall response, or OR, defined as a platelet count of equal to or greater than 30,000 per microliter of blood, confirmed on at least two separate occasions, at least a doubling of the baseline platelet count, and the absence of bleeding within one year following enrollment. Secondary endpoints included complete response, time to response, duration of response, adverse events, and bleeding symptoms. The analysis of both primary and secondary endpoints was performed on the intent-to-treat population. Post hoc secondary endpoints included sustained response, or SR, relapse-free survival, remission, and rescue treatment. SR was defined as maintenance of a platelet count greater than 30,000 per microliter of blood, an absence of bleeding, and no requirement for any other ITP-specific treatment for six consecutive months after achievement of OR. An overall response was achieved by 80% of patients receiving low-dose rituximab plus ATRA, compared to 59% of patients receiving low-dose rituximab monotherapy. And SR was achieved by 61% of patients receiving the combination treatment, compared to 41% of patients receiving only rituximab. Interestingly, Remission rates at 12 months were also higher in patients receiving combination treatment, with 42% achieving remission, compared to 13% of those receiving rituximab monotherapy. Conversely, relapse rates during the follow-up period were higher in the monotherapy group compared to the combination group, 79% versus 48%, respectively. In addition, the relapse-free survival rate was significantly higher in patients receiving combination treatment. Most reported adverse events were grade 1 or 2. Dry skin and headache and dizziness were reported by 40% and 19% of patients in the combination group, respectively, and were attributed to atrotherapy. In the monotherapy group, 21% and 14% of patients reported fever and upper respiratory infections, respectively. Taken together, 
These findings demonstrate that ATRA plus low-dose rituximab combination therapy significantly increases the overall response rate, as well as the sustained response rate, in adult patients with corticosteroid-resistant or relapsed ITP, and thus may be a promising treatment option for this group of patients. In an accompanying commentary, Yunju Lee and James B. Bussell from the New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medicine in New York note that the findings by Wu and colleagues point to the potential utility of ATRA in ITP in combination with either rituximab or perhaps dexamethasone, as recently reported. However, they also mention several important limitations of the study, including the smaller number of enrolled patients than originally planned, potential impact of concomitant medications, and limited follow-up. Lee and Bussell conclude that the current study supports the hypothesis that two drugs are better than one in ITP. However, which combination is optimal remains an open question. In the future, consideration should be given to the mechanisms of action and route of administration of each therapy, treatment cost, and the potential for overlapping toxicities. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.